good to see everybody. This reminds me of Paul. See what large letters I write to you. <laughs> see, most churches won't even get that. Um, it's good to be here. As usual, I went through my week of torture, trying to figure out what I'm going to say, and then procrastinating. And Well, I need to eat something. I need to make a phone call. And the day's coming. And, uh, and somehow, God gives me something. I hope it's good. It's, it's funny. You start out thinking you have to figure out something to say. And once you get into the flow, I think some of you may have experienced this. It's a little bit like paint by numbers. It's here. Just say it. You don't have to say it perfectly. You don't have to say it so eloquently, though that's all nice. I mean, Jim's very eloquent most of the time, and it's impressive. You know, he makes it look real easy. I have notes I need to look at. I can't just get up and orate. All right, so hopefully this will be a commercial-free message. Any and all questions, save for the end. Write them down. I'll be happy to stick around. If I get interrupted, I really lose my place. Usually I like to start with the bad news and then come in with the good news. Today I want to start with good news and then bring in some of the bad news. Not bad really for us. And then bring in good news again at the end. How many of you all moviegoers, do you remember the movie, um, the original Superman with Christopher Reeve? Well, for some reason, there's a scene in that movie early that's always stuck with me, something he and she say to each other. And it was really right in the beginning when he first kind of makes his appearance to the world. And uh, she's in a helicopter. Remember? And, of course... Lois is doing something she shouldn't do, and she's precariously near the edge of the helicopter, and then something happens, and then before you know it, she's hanging, it looks like 60 stories high, and she's got a seatbelt. She's holding on. <clears throat> it looks bad. And it's funny, but that, for that moment, it almost looks like the plight of mankind, how desperate and hopeless it looks sometimes. Well, here he comes. First, he, he walks by a, a modern phone booth, and he makes a look. He can't even change on the phone booth, you know. He changes. He flies up together. And then he says, easy, miss. I've got you. And she said, do you remember? Yes. See, that line sticks. She said, you've got me. Who's got you? So the question of the day, and it's a rhetorical question, is who has got you? Who's got you? Does God have you? Because along the way, I think we grab onto other things. You know, I, I, I trust God, but I need this. Use your imagination. What's got you? What's keeping you? What's sustaining you? Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. First, I want to read the answer to the question, then I'll give you some context. So the question is, who's got a hold of you? Look at verse 12, and then we're going to go back and give some context. Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. He believed that Christ Jesus had laid hold of him. It's a pretty heavy concept, 
and I'm going to try to explain a little bit just from the context, but that's true of us. No matter where you are in your walk, God has laid hold of you, and you're safe. No matter how many stories you are high, even if the helicopter's on fire, even if you end up dying, he's got a hold of you. That's awesome. I just want to go back and look at verse, starting with verse 8. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them all as rubbish that I may gain Christ. I'm not going to say what I'm thinking, but the word for rubbish is much harsher than the word rubbish. He counts everything he's lost as complete garbage, something you never want to see again, worthless. What he lost by gaining Christ. I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So when God has a hold of you, you don't have to worry about putting forth your righteousness. You've been declared righteous by God and you pass through the courtroom innocent, though you are guilty. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That sounds harsh. Being conformed to his death. So this is unto death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul sees death necessary so that we can then be resurrected. This is all part of what you leave behind. This life. And then he says, not that I've already attained or already perfected, but I press on that I may hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. This is awesome news, and it's really hard to fully grasp. The key phrases, rejoice, rubbish, righteousness from God by faith, conform to his death to attain the resurrection from the dead. Press toward the goal. This is awesome news for believers called by God. So, all this little passage basically says is it tells you who you are. It tells you why you are. It tells you your meaning and your purpose. And more importantly, it tells you your destiny. I'm not sure what else we need to know. It's similar in a more concise way in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I think I remember it. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. For you are the workmanship of God, created in Christ for good works, that he laid out beforehand that you should walk in. So even your good works, God laid them out. He's got you covered from the beginning to the end. He's got hold of you. He's laid hold of you. He's got you. Now, what does the world have to offer us? <clears throat> what I want to do is paint a stark contrast between where we are when God has laid hold of you and, sadly, when he has not. The world has a lot of volume out there. There's a lot of noise, not much substance. It's pretty much a horror story. The world has, to put it mildly, a degraded view of God. How do we know? How do we know this? Turn over to Romans chapter 2. Actually, chapter 1. This is a long passage, but it's strangely one of my favorites. 
Okay, I'm going to just read through it. Then we're going to highlight all the positive things God has to say about this world. We'll start with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is the bad news, by the way. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their heart to dishonor their body among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I'm going to just skip on to chapter 2, first verse. Therefore, they're inexcusable. It's all bad. It's all bad. And it's the story of what we would be if God didn't lay hold of us. And that is horrifying, but it's pretty awesome news for us. So I'm going to just highlight some of the wonderful words here. Futility, foolish, believe a lie, worship the creature, vile passion, shameful, debased mind. Now, I just want to pause for a second. It is not as if this stuff never occurs to us anymore, but God has laid hold of us. So while God, you know, we're carrying around this dead body, we still look and see things and get drawn into things and thoughts that are not pure, but God has laid hold of you. That's what you've got to hang on to. Not, oh, God, I'm never going to be perfect. You are not here. So don't get hung up on this because some of this steps on my toes and some of this is about to step on the kids' toes. And I think you know what I'm about to say. All right, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, (laughs) undiscerning. (laughs) Who hasn't done that? But it's important. These things are important, that God would actually have that on a list. Why is that important? God has entrusted you to your parents. It's a big deal. Don't go home and freak out because I said that. But Paul put it on his list. Untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, fools. And lastly and sadly, most importantly, inexcusable. God says it's inexcusable. That is you without God. So here's the contrast. God's either laid hold of you. Jesus has either laid hold of you or you're that. With no hope. There is no middle ground. Unless God intervenes in someone's life and lays hold of them, there's no hope it's, and they're inexcusable. Now, why can't the world figure this out? You think it ought to be common sense. They ought to be able to see it's better to do good. Why can't they figure this out? And the answer, much to the chagrin of our free will neighbors, is that they can't. And we're going to just look at two passages real quick. One is one familiar to the men's group. Romans 8, verse 7. The 
then the next one explains it better. Romans 8, 7. Now, here, when he says the carnal mind, he means the mind that God has not laid hold of, that has not been given the spirit of God, and it's just left, man's left to his own devices, or women. Don't let me leave you out. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. I mean, right there. Enmity against God. Man is at war with God by his nature, and we would be exactly like that if God left us alone. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. That's the first thing that made me come talk to Jim in the first place. I started seeing passages about unable, and it can't be. And I thought, now, whoa, wait a minute. You know, this is a matter of me deciding, and that's what I thought. Wrong. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is good. This explains why a man in his natural state cannot understand spiritual things. You don't have to figure it out. It just says it right here. Promise. Start with verse 11. <clears throat> for, what man, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. I want you to say it with me. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can know the things of God. No matter how smart you are, no matter how good you think you are, you cannot know the things of God unless the Spirit of God is in you. You cannot. And he's going to explain this further. Now, we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Who's we? Us. Us. The elect. But the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. By the way, freely given, does that mean, that means we, what we do to get it? Because it's free. These things we also speak not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What does it say? The gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Try it. Try talking to people that God is not working on. Please go away with that free gift, God loves me stuff. I don't want to hear it. I've had that happen enough times. <clears throat> so, we cannot know spiritual things apart from God, putting the Spirit of God in us. So, God has laid hold of us, not by our will, but His will, and separated us from the world, the world that we most surely deserve. Okay? And the people of the world don't have the enlightened spiritual means to comprehend the spiritual things of God. If we have the means to do that, it's because it was given to us. And that's the only way we're going to understand any of this. We can't explain this to someone that God is not working on. There's no eloquence. It doesn't matter what the words on the page say. It won't mean that to them. 
And that's according to scripture, not just our church. So there's no middle ground. Spiritually speaking, you're either in the world or God has come into you and made you different. Jesus has laid hold of you and given you a righteousness. He's forgiven you and given you meaning, purpose, and an eternal destiny with God. That's pretty good. By the way, Paul has not said much about our efforts to initiate or cause any of this. I don't know if you noticed. Even the good works we do, God laid them out beforehand. It's all been arranged. He's got a hold of us. And we're just kind of, we're going along for the ride and muddling our way through. I want to say something, something that happened this morning. Actually started yesterday. I'm sitting there and it's so strange. I know you all have experienced this, the way God will kind of talk to you at a moment when you're not really prepared, like at a funeral or a wedding. Uh, And yesterday, it it wasn't even anything that was said, and most of it was really good. I I sat there thinking, you know, it's a nice building. I don't know these people. People can get up and say anything at church. Anything. And I immediately thought, you know what I really like about our church? And I like it about the men's group particularly. Not that we have it all figured out, but that what we do is we try, we're trying to get to the truth. We really believe the truth resides in here with God. And we're just trying to put our heads together and what is it, what is this saying? And how important that is. We're not sitting there trying to figure out what each of us thinks. Though we enjoy listening, but the point of it is that we're trying to figure out what the word is saying. And that's what I really, that's what I love about this church. They see God's hand in everything. So Betty this morning, coming in with her little walker. And by the way, her real name is Elizabeth. And she would prefer that. But her mother started calling her Betty. Well, so poor Betty comes in, and Betty's been around a little bit, and she falls and breaks her, was it hip? Leg. Leg. You know, she can correct me. She comes in with a little walker, and she says to me, well, God put me down for a little while, learned some things about myself I didn't like, but it's all good. And I'm like, you know how inspiring that is? How awesome that is? This is why I come to this church. It's, not, it's the old joke. I'd rather be here than with the finest Christians I know. I don't care about what else is going on. If that's where your head's at and that's what you're about, I need to be around that. You see God's purpose in everything. And you had every right, uh, you know, as a human being to go, I can't believe it. I lived this long and now I break my leg. And look at me walk around with a walker and I'm tired of feeling bad. No, that's not what I got out of her. That's just a tiny example why we love this place. Okay. What I see, though, is that so many churches and preachers, I'm going to use a nice word, they flirt or they downright teach some form of middle ground. And by middle ground, what I mean is they somehow diminish God a little bit and they kind of elevate man a little bit. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear them say it. You'll hear them talk about, you know, you need to have a superlative effort. You need to do this. You need to do this. And the thoughtful people sitting there going, gee, I don't do that all the time. I do it once in a while. And I wonder how I'm standing with God. 
So what God did is diminished, and somehow it's on you. And I'm just going to tell you, whenever you start feeling that feeling, probably someone's picking your pocket, okay? They're trying to get you, maybe not consciously, maybe they're not aware of it, but they're doing something that's actually taking some of God's glory away, and they're elevating man, and they really believe that's the way it is. And to me, that's a road to disaster, you know, there are many Christians out there that don't believe correctly about a lot of things. That's not what I'm talking about. But you have to listen. You have to discern, what am I listening to here? What is this? And uh, you, hear, you hear things from, you know, we do, when we're in the men's group, we're, all, we're listening to each other, you know. Well, now, are you saying this? You've got to be vigilant about this. So just beware of that middle ground. Y'all ever heard of the law of excluded middle? I took a logic class once. You wouldn't believe it to listen to me. But I did. And it was basically saying a thing either is what it is or it's not. And there's really no middle ground from that standpoint. Well, it's either gospel or it's not. God's either sovereign or he's not. And I believe things about God for 50 years that were not sovereign. They were wrong. And... Boy, you, you want to, you know, you know, you wake up in the morning and you take your pet pill or you take this, you drink coffee, you do whatever. You want to be anxious? Just start thinking God's not sovereign <laughs> and that it's up to you and you're hanging from the helicopter, you know? So basically up with God and down with people is the safe way to go. I know that sounds negative, but that's only because I haven't told you yet what the Bible says about this. That's really negative. Well, actually, I have told you some, but there's more. Any teaching which elevates man and diminishes God in any way is really not biblical. I don't mean you're going to hell if you think it, but don't think it. Think correctly. Let's turn over to Daniel chapter 4. This is a crazy story. You all like horror stories? Remember the king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? One of the most powerful people that ever lived. The king of Babylon held on to Israel. Big historical thing. Powerful dude. All he had to do was speak it and it would happen in his kingdom. Well, God did something to him. And you think, oh my goodness. As you, I'm just preparing you. It's, if you haven't read this story, it's just freaky. What God did. It, if you didn't read it, you wouldn't believe it. Oh, God would never do that. Yeah, God would and did. Let's start with verse 28, Daniel 4, okay? All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Listen to his thought process. The king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times, that may mean years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Okay, that had to be unnerving. 
that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. The great mighty Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I, I can't even imagine how horrifying it would have been to see him out there eating grass, all wet, eagle's feathers, claws, and this went on for a while. This is God who's sitting up in heaven just wringing his hands, hoping people believe in him. <clears throat> no. Sorry. Verse 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now listen to what he says in verse 35. When I said, you know, down with people, listen. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. His new perspective, and by the way, he would be one of those inhabitants. He, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven <clears throat> and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's sovereignty. First of all, God takes this man that nobody could touch militarily or anything. He probably had 10 people tasting his food. He was safe, right? No. That very moment, God took him down. He ends up saying, okay, basically people are nothing. In God's economy, people are nothing like compared to God. God does according to his will. God has free will. God is the one that has the will to do whatever he wants to do, when he wants to do, why he wants to do it. And he doesn't need me or you to explain it to him. And he doesn't need us to agree. He doesn't sit, I mean, he didn't think he waited for Nebuchadnezzar to agree. Among the, he does according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand. Is anybody more powerful than God? No. no. Or say to him, what have you done? What about can a man's free will restrain God's hand? No. That was the biggest thing I learned when I started, before I came here. That's why I came here. If man's free will can upset God's will, God's will would not happen. Everything would be totally random. And there's people that are Christians that believe this. And this is awful, so make sure you give them a bottle of Xanax to go with this, because <laughs> this is going to make you so anxious. If you, if you just, what would God have to do to a man worse than this? And he comes out at the end, oh yeah, God's really sovereign. He could do anything. Praise God. That's sanity. So, God has got you. Jesus has laid hold of you. We will never truly have peace till we see God's sovereign hand in everything. Everything. And it's a lot easier to talk about this than live it out, I can tell you right now. Uh, it's probably a day doesn't go by that I do something or think something or worry about something that really directly relates back to God's sovereignty. This is part of God's process. Instead of, oh, how could they do that? How could she say that? How could they treat me like this? Wah, wah. But that's human, okay? So don't be too down on yourself when you do it. Just quit, okay? So this is really important. You will never have peace in this life till you see God's sovereign hand in everything. Everything. That's how Job got through it. That's how Nebuchadnezzar could rationalize. 
It is ignorance of biblical teaching of God's sovereignty specifically, which is responsible for so many churches and individuals falling captive to their little falsisms. I read this at homecoming. I'm going to read it again. It's the best thing I've ever read on God's sovereignty. I won't make you stand if you don't want to. This guy was an awesome exegete and theologian. Awesome. He died in 1952. And it's funny because he's talking about, man, things have really gotten bad. Everything he's saying is what's happening. So he's talking about God's sovereignty. As part of our definition of God's sovereignty, we affirmed to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. The sovereignty of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, and infinite. To put it now in its strongest form, we insist that God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he decreed in eternity. In proof of this assertion, we appeal to the following scriptures. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 115. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Isaiah 14. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. We just read that. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11. That's a Pentecostal moment right there. (laughs) Folks, we got it made and we don't even realize it. We have to study this. We have to teach this. We have to believe it. We have to proclaim it. We have to apply it to all our life circumstances and interactions with others. The world is going crazy, okay? God's not worried. He's not alarmed. It's all gone according to his plan, which blows my mind. The word to the believer today is fear not. So when you're falling from your personal helicopter, don't despair, don't fear, don't grab the bottle. God's got you. 